0: Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. In this show, we discuss topical foreign policy issues. I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders and luminaries who discuss their life and career, often with digressions about historic foreign policy events in which their life and career intersected. And we cover often overlooked issues in global affairs. If you want to learn more, visit GlobalDispatchesPodcast.com. And now on with the show. The Ebola outbreak ongoing in the Democratic Republic of Congo is the most severe Ebola outbreak since the 2014 calamity in West Africa that killed over 11,000 people. Citing figures about this outbreak is a bit tricky right now because the situation remains so extremely fluid. At the time I am recording this, which is in the last week of May, there have been over 20 deaths linked to this outbreak and over 50 suspected cases. But by the time you listen to this episode, that number will inevitably change. So what I wanted to do with This episode is to offer you some broader context for understanding this particular outbreak and also explore how the international response to this outbreak is so profoundly different from the response back in 2014. I could have no better person on the show to discuss these questions and more than my guest today, Lori Garrett. She is a global health expert, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, and former fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. We kick off discussing the origins of this ongoing outbreak in the DRC before having a longer conversation about the global response to this outbreak and how that response is so different from what happened in West Africa in 2014. This conversation, I think, provides you some really important uh, background and context for understanding this ongoing emergency in DRC and how it may evolve and what the international response has been so far. A big thank you to Laurie Garrett for speaking with me on such short notice and, as always, if you have questions for me or if you have suggestions of people I should interview topics I should cover, or just have anything that's that's on your mind that you'd love to to share, please send me an email. You can do so using the contact page on Global Dispatches podcast.com. I always love hearing from you. I know I, I say that a lot. If you're a regular listener to the show, you know that I often encourage you to reach out to me to send me your emails. Uh, I mean it. You know, I do this show for you. Uh, and so it's important to me to, to get some feedback from you from time to time. So thank you. All right. Now here is my conversation with author Lori Garrett. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube.
1: Presumably, it started the way every Ebola epidemic we know of has started. A hunter or someone who was, for some reason, spending a lot of time in the neighboring rainforest area was somehow directly or indirectly exposed to a bat that carried the virus. And as far as we know, there's no evidence that it's about being bit by a bat. These are fruit bats, not vampire bats. And so it may have been something very simple and indirect, and therefore hard to ultimately prevent for example, we know that chimpanzees can get Ebola, and it usually is because the bats are in the upper levels of the rainforest, they chew on fruit, and they tend to, to masticate the fruit to remove the fleshy part and then spit out the rest, and the chimps might find what was spat out on the ground, chew it themselves, and then get infected with the virus, uh, we don't know how any of the particular individual first cases have acquired their infection in specific detail. We just know it's it deep in rainforest areas, uh, primarily in Congo, uh, and that by exposure to the bats, they acquire the infection. So it starts with one case. Then the spread from there follows a pattern in every outbreak, and this one doesn't appear to be any different. It is that the caretakers, the family members that are most likely to uh, sit by the bedside and and hand-feed the ailing individual, uh, become infected as a result of exposure to that individual's bodily fluids because uh, people literally... uh, exude the virus through sweat glands, through any wounds they may have that are feeding. Um, They vomit up virus. They uh, have virus in their diarrhea and eventually literally may bleed out virus in their tears and in their nasal fluids and so on. And so anybody who is trying to keep them cleaned up, dabbing their foreheads, wiping off sweat, that sort of thing is potentially exposed. And so then the next tier of exposure in every outbreak, and this one has been just exactly the same, occurs when somebody finally is so sick that the family members bring them to the local clinic or hospital. And there, if there aren't the proper protective gear, and by the way, what hospital even in your neighborhood Mm -hmm. has supplies of proper protective gear for the doctors and nurses in the emergency room, if they don't have proper protective gear, healthcare workers get exposed as they examine the patient and attempt whatever treatment they may have on hand that they think may be relevant.
0: And then, and then uh, should that patient die? Uh, oftentimes it's at the funeral when many more people are exposed to the virus.
1: Funerals are a major cause of spread for Ebola, and as we're learning, uh, some other viruses such as Lassa and monkeypox and so on. And there are a number of reasons. In some places like Congo, uh, Catholicism may be the dominant sort of uh, institutionalized religion. And it is common practice in the Catholic Church to have open casket ceremonies. Uh, and for people to touch or even embrace the deceased um, as part of bidding them farewell. Uh, and that is unfortunately extremely dangerous if the deceased died of Ebola. In fact, when I was in the Ebola epidemic in Liberia, um, a small team of scientists operating in Very difficult conditions, a sort of slapdash biohazard level four high security lab, was looking at some of the specific issues of just how many viruses could be collected off of a given surface or um, a given part of the human body or certain types of fluids to understand how this was happening. And they were able to show that even five days after death, an individual who succumbed to ebola could have more live viruses on the surface of their body than would be present in the blood of an actively alive and infected individual Hmm. that is astounding and it tells you a great deal about why the funerals in particular are so dangerous and then you add to it that for many of the cultures in africa depending where you are obviously extreme, you don't want to paint any broad brush and say, you know, all Africans or even all Congolese do things a certain way. But in certain specific cultural settings, there may be additional practices that are traditional that even precede the arrival of Catholicism and involve such things as, for example, in many um, African societies, traditionally, the dead must go on into the afterlife completely cleansed. Mm -hmm. And cleansing is not just washing the outside of the body, but also cleansing from the inside. Uh, And this may really put the individual doing the cleansing uh, in tremendous exposure to infected fluids.
0: So uh, I know that you're on many of the same WHO press conference calls as, as I am. And one thing that struck me uh, about this outbreak in a recent call was a description about how remote some of the affected villagers are. Uh, I think someone said it's something like a you know an eight-hour motorbike bike ride on on dirt roads in order to to get to some of these places. In this outbreak was it the case that um the the first people infected were infected in extremely remote areas but then what became particularly alarming is that the uh, outbreak spread to a major city
1: well let's let's back up again a little history i mean one of the things that has kept ebola from causing global panic until the most recent uh outbreaks in 2014 that pers- went through three countries and lasted for two years, is that they have indeed been very remote, very hard to get to places where it was extremely unlikely that any individual would make their way to an international airport or a seaport and, uh, or a superhighway and get someplace that, where they could uh, pass the virus on to the world community at large. Now, the first real exception to that was an epidemic I was in in 1995, also in Congo, but in kind of the opposite end of the country, in a a place called Kikwit, located in southern Congo. And at that time, the country was called Zaire. Um, The dictator at the time, Mobutu, uh, knew that Kikwit had a population of nearly half a million people, so this wasn't a village. This was a big city. but it, And it was a city bordered by a small river and a giant rainforest with steady and quick access into Angola and uh, two big highways that went to the capital city of Kinshasa and went to the other major city of Lumbumbashi. And, and Lumbumbashi is a huge mining center um, with people coming in from all over the world for diamonds, gold, uranium, you name it. So, there, the way the dictator handled it was to order the army to immediately shut down the highways. Mm. And that effectively cut kickwheat off. There, because the rainforest is so dense around it, there was no alternative driving path that made any sense to move cargo and traffic and the usual flow of humanity in and out of Kikwit, um, and so in fact the only way I got there was by hitching a ride uh, in the back of a cargo plane uh, from a missionary group hmm. that landed on a soccer field in the middle of this town of Kikwit. Uh, so in that case, the remoteness effectively kept the epidemic restricted to a specific region, villages and this town of Kikwit. Last year, there was another outbreak in DR Congo. And uh, again, it was so remote, so difficult to get to, that even MSF, Medecins Sans Frontieres, or Doctors Without Borders, fairly quickly concluded that it would remain in a narrow area and burn itself out in that area. And that is indeed what happened, and it was brought under control fairly quickly. This year, we have a kind of mix for the first time for Congo. We have uh, what started as an extremely remote, and I, when I say extremely, I mean we're talking villages that are really only connected by footpaths mm. and that are difficult to reach even on a motorcycle. Much there are no possibility of automobiles, trucks, Helicopters. It's just incredibly remote. Um, it, so at first, it looked like it would be similar to last year's Congo outbreak, relatively easy to bring under control. But then uh, a case turned up in uh, a, a neighborhood of the city of Mbandaka. and which is a
0: very large city.
1: It's 1.2 million people. But more importantly, because kickweed with half a million, was not a small town. But big difference, Mbandaka is a, a port city on the Congo River. Um, it is where all the neighboring villagers would come to trade their goods and to try and sell bananas or crops or things they've hunted out of the rainforest or products they've manufactured in their homes and so on. They would sell at the port city for it to then be relayed down or up the river to some other uh, r- urban areas. And in particular, the big, the big kahuna in terms of making money as a, a Congo River dealer is to get things to Kinshasa, the capital city.
0: And the river uh, connects Ndaka to Kinshasa.
1: Correct. Mm-hmm. It is the superhighway of Congo, the Congo River.
0: And so now there, there's been, um, you know, confirmed cases in the city, in, in rural areas. Um, how has, the response to this outbreak differed from the response to the 2014 outbreak. I'm really interested in in sort of getting your impressions and getting your analysis of the ways in which the World Health Organization in particular is is approaching this particular outbreak.
1: Well, as I think all of your listeners probably know, WHO has been severely and harshly criticized by many parties, including myself, as one of the investigating teams uh, assessing WHO's performance, severely criticized for its almost leisurely response. Uh, That outbreak began in uh, Meliandu, Guinea, in a similarly very remote area uh, in with the first known case having occurred, a toddler who was uh, playing with bats uh, in a remote village, uh, he took ill the day after Christmas 2013. Uh, soon, he, some of his family members took ill, and uh, funerals started to be convened, uh, both in the village and in nearby villages where some of the relatives came to original funerals, got infected, took the virus to their villages, and so on. And because of the tremendous fluidity of movement in that area, uh, many people really were, aren't necessarily Ghanaian. They may feel more like they're part of their clan, which overlaps into Liberia and Sierra Leone. And this area was very close to a, a kind of three-point border where all three nations convened or met. Uh, and very quickly that spread to neighboring countries. And nevertheless, despite this... Um, unfolding drama. WHO concluded uh, just a couple of weeks after it was confirmed in the Pasteur Laboratories that Ebola was the responsible agent for all the illnesses and deaths in the area. uh, WHO concluded it was under control, it wasn't going anywhere, it was going to stay in these remote areas, and pretty much pulled most of their teams out uh, and so did many of the uh, international responders simply following the queue of WHO. We have subsequently seen email traffic between people on the ground, people at the, the Africa regional headquarters of WHO and people in Geneva discussing whether or not it would, uh, you know, anger African leaders if they uh, announced that there was such an up ep- or mm-hmm. raised the level of alarm and talk about economic impact, things that are not supposed to be part of the decision tree of how the World Health Organization reacts mm-hmm. to an outbreak. And uh, all of this led to a delay so that it wasn't until August 8, 2014, many months, mm-hmm. almost nine months after it all started, that... Uh, then Director General of WHO, Margaret Chan, declared a public health emergency of international concern. And by then, you had a raging epidemic in three countries. It had reached the national capitals of all three of those countries. Uh, You'd had riots in the streets, Monrovia, Liberia. You had heads of state in all three countries tearing their hair out, wondering, what can we do? How can we possibly stop this um, and you had a huge burden of death and illness in healthcare workers so, in all three countries.
0: So, so that was uh, that that incident caused a lot of self reflection uh, by the the WHO and other members of the international community. And uh, the WHO seems to have like uh, you know created some lessons learned. And I take you're you're part of that process. How have some of those lessons been applied to the the current outbreak, or have they?
1: Oh, they have. And I mean, if, you know, the comparison in terms of the pace of response is night and day. In this case, first identification of why unusual deaths were occurring uh, was in early May. That notification was passed on to the capital in Kinshasa to the Ministry of Health. Within hours, they samples. They had flown a crew in to try to get to the area where the outbreak was reported, and they were uh, sending samples for verification. And on uh, May 8th, it was announced, and they formally notified uh, WHO that Ebola had broken out. At that point, they only had two confirmed cases, but that was enough to prompt an immediate uh, escalation of Response in Geneva and at uh, Brazzaville, the uh, headquarters of WHO's regional command in Africa. And uh, that has been, from there, just lightning speed in terms of mobilizing crews from around the world. For the first time in the history of WHO, the Director General personally, uh, Dr. Tedros, went to the outbreak personally viewed the situation and came back uh, to Geneva to issue reports and call for donors to step forward with money to help finance the response and control. And also for the first time in the history of Ebola, we have an experimental vaccine Mm -hmm. that is being put into use now as we speak to try and slow or stop the spread of the virus from the known and identified cases and areas where there seems to be infection.
0: Can can you talk a a little bit uh, about that vaccine? Because it seems very sort of it's logistically challenging, right it has to be kept in an extremely cold temperature and these uh, and in many of the places where it's deployed there you know there's no electricity to 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 keep it that cold so what is the the strategy of deploying the vaccine doing that so called ring vaccine strategy looking like mm-hmm. on on the ground uh today and and I know we're speaking well, actually just it, a few it, days you know, after it's been deployed yeah well
1: the first the good news is. Well, this vaccine has never been put to the test like this before, so we're actually watching a giant experiment unroll in real time in front of our eyes. It was tested at the very end of the West African Ebola epidemic and proved to be completely safe. There were no serious side effects observed whatsoever. And two years after vaccination, the, the people that it was tested on in Sierra Leone and Guinea uh, are still showing antibodies against the virus. And it stopped spread, further spread that none of the people who were vaccinated in Guinea and Sierra Leone have uh, infected with Ebola. So it looked like uh, it offered long term, if not lifelong protection. It did not require a booster, which is a uh, Huge issue in a logistic nightmare like this situation because you may find people once but you won't find them the second time. And thankfully, it doesn't appear to require a second or third booster like so many other vaccines do. So, in many ways, it's like a smallpox vaccine from the 1960s in the sense that one dose is all you need and you're protected. But here's the problem unlike the smallpox, This is a particular kind of vaccine that requires refrigeration. It has to be administered cold, and the syringe has to be cold. The whole process is what we call the cold chain, and it has to be maintained from beginning to end. You're talking about going into an area where there's no electricity, uh, no batteries. I mean, whatever the vaccinator brings with them in their backpack is all they've got they're on foot trying to find people or on mopeds in arduous conditions in an equatorial rainforest where temperatures are commonly uh, well above 95 degrees Fahrenheit. So you're 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 in kind of worst-case scenario in terms of maintaining a cold chain. In order to uh achieve this the Global Alliance of Vaccinators Gavi has put a lot of work for the last uh, four or five years Mm. along with the Gates Foundation and PATH, the uh, appropriate technology research group in Seattle, put a lot of money into coming up with technologies that act as refrigerators without requiring a generator and a steady power supply that is cumbersome and, um, you know, expensive Mm. and so on. And, special equipment for the entire cold chain process. Uh, I've seen some of that equipment
0: on on display at various, uh, you know, PATH and and Gavi and Gates Foundation uh, events. A lot of it's like very, very impressive.
1: It is impressive. Of course, it's being put to a test. Mm -hmm. uh, And it's not any one product. uh, But the intent is to imagine that you're creating a giant thermos and that thermos will maintain a consistent temperature for 12 or 24 hours, mm-hmm. allowing the individual that's delivering vaccine to make it to these very remote places, identify who needs to be vaccinated, execute mass vaccination, and then make it back, uh, to replenish supplies from a central, uh, generator maintained refrigeration system. Uh, and the goal is to vaccinate more than 7,000 people, ultimately, as is needed. On immediate first-round basis, they're hoping to have all the healthcare workers who are directly exposed to patients vaccinated um, over the next few days uh, and all of the family members that are known to have had physical contact with an ailing or de- deceased Ebola victim vaccinated, um, uh, and and then start working outwards from identified hotspots in circles that move from immediately within hundreds of feet of an index case, a known Ebola infected person, outwards in. Uh, uh, Outer ever widening circumferences Mm -hmm. uh, to reach people further and further away.
0: So, so so can I ask uh, to to conclude? What are you looking uh, at that might suggest to you how this outbreak will evolve, whether or not it will sort of remain more or less contained or whether or not it will spread? Are there any sort of specific indicators that that you're looking towards that would suggest how this will evolve one way or the other?
1: Absolutely. Uh, Yesterday, Peter Salama, who runs all the outbreak response for WHO, was delivering a speech to the annual World Health Assembly in Geneva, and he used an expression that I, you know, made me go, gazing, perfect, stated exactly so. He said, epidemiology is the knife's edge in this outbreak. And to explain what he means, epidemiology is the field detective work. It's hard, slogging work, especially when transport is so difficult where you're trying to figure out how everybody is getting infected and literally follow it with names so that you know that John Jones just died of Ebola and here's the Jones family and here's who got the family to the health clinic and here's every one of their neighbors and everybody who went to John Jones's funeral and blah, 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 and you trace and trace and trace so that hopefully you can show exactly how everybody got it and who they get it from. And any gaps or holes in that detective work um, re- represents vulnerabilities for further spread. Now, the problem at this moment is that there is a neighborhood within the city of uh, Mbandaka that is, uh, as as of today, 10 identified cases of Ebola, I think two of which have succumbed to the disease so far. Uh, And uh, those 10 represent three entirely different chains of transmission. One set of cases started with somebody who attended a funeral in the rural area where the outbreak started, came back, and then passed infection to others. Another chain seems to involve some other ceremonial function in a separate rural area. And the third chain, as far as I know, nobody's really figured out how the first case arose. So that means that there's transmission going on in this city that's not fully understood and is complicated. It's multiple different chains of transmission so you're in there like a detective and you're tracking basically you can imagine it like a homicide detective you've got three different murder scenes and you don't know if it's a coincidence that you have these three different scenes or if they're somehow connected you don't you know who the murderer is but you haven't caught them yet and you haven't stopped them, and they're still out there, and you don't know if there's one murderer, two, three, five. It's a very complicated moment, and the worst-case scenario would be if we get real spread inside of this city and from this city, because it is a Congo River port city, um, individuals carrying virus in them unknowingly, and going down to other cities on both sides of the river, meaning then it becomes more than one country involved because across one side immediately is uh, Central African Republic, not far down the river begins uh, Congo Brazzaville, or go the other way on the river and you end up towards Uganda. So we're in a tough moment here.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time, Laurie. This was very, very helpful. And I guess I'll see you on a future WHO press conference call.
1: Okay, take care. Thanks.
0: Bye. Bye. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Laurie. I found that so particularly helpful uh, and timely. Um, You know, as I mentioned at the outset, this situation is very, very rapidly evolving. So by the time you hear this, those figures and stats may have changed. But I think this conversation gives you the background and and the context you need to understand uh, those potential changes to this fluid situation. Oh, before I I go, I have like maybe seven stickers left. If you want one, Uh, please send me uh, an email uh, telling me that you've written a review of the show. I give these uh, Global Dispatches podcast stickers out to people who've left a review of the show on iTunes. I so appreciate your support. So leave a review, send me an email, and I will mail you a sticker. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye.